i heard the bells on christmas day their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth good will to man welcome to the seventh day of craftlet our 12-day christmas story extravaganza Today, in our seventh day, I am bringing you Christmas tales from around the world. And of course, from around time. These all are public domain texts, and because of that, they take place in different times, and in this case, in some very different places. We have the South Pacific weighing in, we have India, we have Texas, and we also have one text that takes place in World War I. It is one of the more complete visions I've read of being in a trench during World War I. It's not all quiet on the Western Front. It's not even close. It's a very interesting depiction of what it was like to be a guy there, especially around the holidays. So that's it for today. You have a short poem and then four story pieces. The last story is the one from Texas. It is rousing and upbeat, and I will let that one play you out today. There is one thing I will alert you to, which is in the third piece, which is Christmas in the Far South Seas. The reader pronounces Maori strangely to my ear, and it took me a while to figure out what what we were talking about. So Maori is Maori, and there's a reference to someone who is half-caste, C-A-S-T-E, like the caste system. This is a European father and a native South Sea Islander mother. And that's certainly an appropriate term for the author to have used at that time. But those were the only things that I wanted to alert you to, and I think that's it. So here we go with our round-the-world stories for Christmas. Here we go. Santa Claus by A. B. Banjo-Patterson Halt! Who goes there? The sentries call. Rose on the midnight air. Above the noises of the camp. The roll of wheels. The horses tramp. The challenge echoed over all. Halt! Who goes there? A quaint old figure clothed in white, he bore a staff of pine. An ivy wreath was on his head. Advance, O oh friend, the sentry said. Advance, for this is Christmas night, and give the countersign. No sign nor countersign have I, through many lands I roam. The whole world over far and wide, to exiles all at Christmas tide, from those who love them tenderly, I bring a thought of home. From English brook and Scottish burn, from cold Canadian snows, from those far lands ye hold most dear, I bring you all a greeting here, a frond of a New Zealand fern, a bloom of English rose. From faithful wife and loving lass, I bring a wish divine, for Christmas blessings on your head. I wish you well, the sentry said, but here, alas, you may not pass without 
the countersign. He vanished, and the sentry's tramp re-echoed down the line. It was not till the morning light the soldiers knew that in the night old Santa Claus had come to camp without the countersign. Christmas in India by Rudyard Kipling Dim don the tamarisks, the sky is saffron yellow, as the women in the village grind the corn, and the parrots seek the riverside, each calling to his fellow, that the day, the staring eastern day, is born. Oh, the white dust of the highway, oh, the stenches in the byway, oh, the clammy fog that hovers over earth. And at home they're making merry, neat the white and scarlet berry. What part have India's exiles in their mirth? Full day behind the tamarisks. The sky is blue and staring, as the cattle crawl afield beneath the yoke. And they bear one o'er the field path, who is past all hope or caring, to the gap below the curling wreaths of smoke. Call on Rama, going slowly, as ye bear a brother lowly. Call on Rama. He may hear, perhaps, your voice. With our hymn-books and our psalters, we appeal to other altars, and to-day we bid good Christian men rejoice. High noon above the tamarisks, the sun is hot above us, as at home the Christmas day is breaking wan. They will drink our healths at dinner, those who tell us how they love us, and forget us till another year be gone. Oh, the toil that knows no breaking! Oh, the haima, ceaseless aching! Oh, the black dividing sea and alien plain! Youth was cheap, wherefore we sold it. Gold was good, we hoped to hold it, and today we know the fullness of our gain. Grey dusk behind the tamarisks, the parrots fly together, as the sun is sinking slowly over home. And his last ray seems to mock us, shackled in a lifelong tether that drags us back however so far we roam. Hard her service, poor her payment, she in ancient, tattered raiment. India, she the grim, stepmother of our kind. If a year of life be lent her, if her temple's shrine we enter, the door is shut, we may not look behind. Black night behind the tamarisks, the owls begin their chorus, as the conks from the temple scream and bray. With the fruitless years behind us and the hopeless years before us, let us honor, O oh my brothers, Christmas Day. Call a truce then to our labors, let us feast with friends and neighbors, and be merry as the custom of our caste. For if faint and forced the laughter, and if sadness follow after, we are richer by one mocking Christmas past. Christmas in a Dugout From Tales from a Dugout By Arthur Guy M.P. Christmas in a Dugout As told by a Yank while on a working party To a squad of Royal Engineers in their dugout You say you fellows have just come out And want to know how I enjoyed last Christmas Well I'll tell you the circumstances And let you judge for yourself about the enjoyment part of it I guess nearly all of you met our guns crew at that show we gave at S, so it will be unnecessary to introduce them. As well as I remember, this is what happened. 
It was Christmas Eve, and cold. Not the kind of cold which sends the red blood tingling through your veins and makes you want to be up an atom, but that miserable, damp kind that eats into the marrow of your bones, attacking you from the rear and sending cold shivers up and down your spinal column. It gives you a feeling of dread and loneliness. The three of us, Curly, Happy and myself, were standing at the corner of Yankee Avenue and Yiddish Street, waiting for the word Stand To, upon which we were to mount our machine gun on the parapet, and go on watch for two hours, with our heads sticking over the top. Yankee Avenue was the name of the fire trench, while Yiddish Street was the communication trench leading to the rear. You see, we were occupying Y sector of the front line of our brigade. The trench was muddy, and in some places a thin crust of ice was beginning to form around the edges of the puddles. We had wrapped our feet and legs with empty sandbags, and looked like snow shovelers on Fifth Avenue. My teeth were chattering with the cold. Happy was slapping his hands on his thighs, while Curly had unbuttoned one of the buttons on his overcoat, and with his left hand was desperately trying to reach under his right armpit. No doubt a cootie had gone marketing for its Christmas dinner. Then came the unwelcome stand-to, and it was up on the fire-step for us, to get our gun mounted. This took about five minutes. Curly, while working away, was muttering, Blimey! Christmas Eve, and here I am somewheres in France, half-starved with the cold. Happy was humming, Keep the home fires burning. Right then, any kind of a home fire would have been very welcome. It was black as pitch in no man's land. Curly stopped muttering to himself, and Happy's humming ceased. There was serious work in front of us. For two hours we had to penetrate that blackness with our straining eyes to see that Fritz did not surprise us with some German Coulter Christmas stunt. Suddenly Happy, who was standing on the fire step next to me, gripped my arm and in a low excited whisper asked, Did you see that out in front, Yank? A little to the right of that black patch in the barbed wire. Turning my eyes in the direction indicated, with my heart pounding against my ribs, I waited for something to develop. Sure enough, I could make out a slight movement. Happy must have seen it at the same time, because he carefully eased his rifle over the top, ready for instant use. My rifle was already in position. Curly was fumbling with the flare pistol. Suddenly a loud plop as he pulled the trigger, and a red streak shot up into the air as the star shell described an arc out in front. It hit the ground and burst, throwing out a white ghostly light. A frightened meow and a cat, with speed clutch open, darted from the wire in front of us, jumped over our gun, and disappeared into the blackness of the trench. Curly ducked his head, and Happy let out a weak, squeaky laugh. I was frozen stiff with fear. Pretty soon the pump action of my heart was resumed, and once more I looked out into no man's land. For the remainder of our two hours on guard, nothing happened. Then we turned over to the second relief, and, half-frozen, waded through the icy mud to the entrance of our dugout. From the depths of the earth came the notes of a harmonica playing, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag, and smile, smile, smile. Stumbling down the muddy steps, we entered the dugout. This was a regular dugout, not like the two-by-four one we generally had wished on us. Eight boys of our machine-gun section, sitting on their packs, had formed a circle around a wooden box. In an old ammunition tin, six candles were burning. I inwardly shuddered at this extravagance, but suddenly remembered that it was Christmas Eve. Sailor Bill was making cocoa over the flames of a Tommy cooker, while Ikey was toasting bread in front of a fire-bucket, 
the fumes from which nearly choked us. As soon as we made our appearance in the dugout, the circle stood up, and, as is usual with you English, unselfishly made room for us to get around the fire bucket to thaw out our stiffened joints. In about twenty minutes or so, the cold of the trench was forgotten, and we joined in the merriment. The musician put his harmonica away, which action was greatly appreciated by the rest of us. It was Ikey. Bursting with importance, Sailor Bill addressed us. Gentlemen, it is now time for the ship's company to report progress as to what they have done for the Christmas feed, which is to be held tomorrow at eight bells. Yank, let's hear yours. I reported one dozen eggs, two bottles of white wine, one bottle of red wine, eight packets of gold flake fags, and one quart bottle of champagne, which had cost me five francs, my last and lonely note on the Banque de France, at a French estaminet. This report was received with a cheer. Ike was next in order. He proudly stated that he had saved his rum ration for the last eleven days, and consequently was able to donate to the feast his water bottle, three-fourths full of rum. We knew he had swiped the rum, but said nothing, because this would help out in making brandy sauce for the plum pudding. Sailor Bill informed us that he had a fruit cake, a bottle of pickled walnuts, and two tins of deviled ham, which had been sent out to him from London. Each man had something to report. I carefully made a list of the articles opposite the name of the person donating them, and turned the list over to Bill, who was to act as cook on the following day. Just then Lance Corporal Hall came into the dugout, and, warming his hands over the fire-bucket, said, "'If you blokes want to hear something that will take you home to Blighty, come up into the fire-trench a minute.' None of us moved. That fire-bucket was too comfortable. After much coaxing, Sailor Bill, Ikey, and myself followed Hall out of the dugout up into the fire-trench. A dead silence reigned, and we started to return. Hall blocked our way and whispered, "'Just a minute, boys, and listen.' Pretty soon, from the darkness out in front, we heard the strains of a cornet playing, It's a long, long trail we're winding. We stood entranced till the last note died out. After about a four or five minute wait, the strains were repeated, and then silence. I felt lonely and homesick. Out of the fire bay on our left, a Welsh voice started singing the song. The German cornet player must have heard it, because he picked up the tune and accompanied the singer on his cornet. I had never heard anything so beautiful in my life before. The music from the German trench suddenly ceased, and in the air overhead came the sharp crack-crack of machine-gun bullets as some Bosch gunner butted in on our concert. We ducked and returned to our dugout. The men were all tied out, and soon rasping snores could be heard from under the cover of blankets and overcoats. The next day was Christmas, and we eagerly awaited the mail, which was to be brought up by the ration party at noon. Not a shot or shell had been fired all morning. The sun had come out, and although the trenches were slippery with mud, still it was warm, and we felt the Christmas spirit running through our veins. We all turned in and cleaned up the dugout. Making reflectors out of ammunition tins, sticking them into the walls of the dugout, we placed a lighted candle in each. Sailor Bill was hustling about, preparing the Christmas spread. He placed a waterproof sheet on the floor, and adding three blankets, spread another waterproof over the top for a tablecloth, and arranged the men's packs around the edge for chairs. Presently the welcome voice of our sergeant came from the entrance of the dugout. "'Come on, me lads, lend a hand with the post.' There was a mad rush for the entrance. In a couple of minutes or so the boys returned, staggering under a load of parcels. 
As each name was read off, a parcel was thrown over to the expectant Tommy. My heart was beating with eagerness as the sergeant picked up each parcel, then a pang of disappointment as the name was read off. Each of the others received from one to four parcels. There were none left. I could feel their eyes sympathising with me. Sailor Bill whispered something to the sergeant that I could not get. The sergeant turned to me and said, "'Why, blimey, Yank, I must be going balmy. I left your parcel up in the trench. I'll be right back.' He returned in a few minutes, with a large parcel addressed to me. I eagerly took the parcel and looked for the postmark. It was from London. Another pang of disappointment passed through me. I knew no one in London. My mail had to come from America. Then it all flashed over me in an instant. About two weeks before I had noticed a collection being taken up in the section, and at the time thought it very strange that I was not asked to donate. The boys had all chipped in to make sure that I would not be forgotten on Christmas. They eagerly crowded around me as I opened the parcel. It contained nearly everything under the sun, including some American cigarettes. Tears of gratitude came to my eyes, but some way or other I managed not to betray myself. Those Tommies certainly were tickled at my exclamations of delight as I removed each article. Out of the corner of my eye I could see them nudging each other. A man named Smith in our section had been detailed as runner to our captain, and was not present at the distribution of the mail. Three parcels and five letters were placed on his pack, so he would receive them on his return to the dugout. In about ten minutes a man came from the trench, loaded down with small oblong boxes. Each Tommy, including myself, received one. They were presents from the Queen of England, and each box contained a small plum pudding, cigarettes, a couple of cigars, matches and chocolate. Every soldier of the British Army in the trenches received one of those boxes on Christmas Day, as most of you know. At last Sailor Bill announced that Christmas dinner was ready, and we each lost no time in getting to our respective packs, sitting around in a circle. Smith was the only absentee, and his parcels and letters, still unopened, were on his pack. He was now a half-hour overdue. Sailor Bill, noting our eagerness to begin, held up his hand and said, "'Now, boys, we're all shipmates together. Don't you think it would be better to wait a few minutes more for Smith?' We all assented, but, soldier-like, cussed him for his delay. Ten minutes passed, fifteen, then twenty. All eyes were turned in Sailor Bill's direction. He answered our looks with, "'Go to it, boys. We can't wait for Smith. I don't know what's keeping him, but you know his name is in orders for leave, and perhaps he's so tickled that he's going to see his wife and three little nippers in Blighty that he's lost his bearings and has run aground.' We started in and waxed merry for a few minutes. Then there'd be an uncomfortable pause, and all eyes would turn in the direction of the vacant place. Uneasiness prevailed. Suddenly the entrance to the dugout was darkened, and a form came stumbling down. With one accord we all shouted, "'Come on, Smith, you're missing one of the best Christmas dinners of your life.' Our sergeant entered the dugout. One look at his face was enough. We knew he was the bearer of ill tidings. With tears in his eyes and a catch in his voice, he asked, "'Which is Smith's pack?' We all solemnly nodded our heads in the direction of the vacant place. Without a word, the sergeant picked up the letters, parcels and pack, and started to leave the dugout. Sailor Bill could stand it no longer, and just as the sergeant was about to leave, he asked, "'Out with it, sergeant. What's happened?' The sergeant turned around, and, in a choking voice, said, "'Boys, Smith's gone west. 
Some bloody German sniper got him through the napper as he was passing that bashed-in part in Yiddish Street. Sailor Bill ejaculated, Poor old Smith, gone west. Then he paused and sobbed out, My God, think of his wife and three little nippers waiting in Blighty for him to come home for the Christmas holidays. I believe that right at that moment a solid vow of vengeance registered itself in every heart around that festive circle. The next day we buried poor Smith in a little cemetery behind the lines. While standing around his grave, our artillery suddenly opened up with an intense bombardment on the German lines, and, as every shell passed screaming overhead, we sent a prayer of vengeance with it. As the grave was filled in, I imagined a huge rainbow embracing the graves in that cemetery, on which in letters of fire was written sarcastically in German, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men but such is war. So, boys, that was my last Christmas. Where I'll be next Christmas, God only knows. Next day my mail came in from America, and didn't cheer me much, because I was thinking of Smith's wife and nippers. So long, boys. I've got to go. A Christmas Eve in the Far South Seas by Lewis Beck Donald McBride and myself were the only Britishers living on one of the North Pacific Island Lagoons when Christmas of 1880 drew near, and we determined to celebrate it in a manner that would fill our German and American trading rivals throughout the group with envy. McBride was a bony, red-headed Scotsman, with a large heart and a small, jealous, half-caste wife. The latter acquisition ruled him with a rod of iron, much to his financial and moral benefit, but nevertheless agreed with me that we, Donald, she, and myself, ought to show the Americans and the Dutchmen how an English Christmas should be celebrated. But as Sarah was a half-caste native of the Pelus, and had never been to a civilized country, she also concurred with me that Donald and myself should run the show, which, although I was not a married man, was to take place in my house on account of the greater space available. Donald, she said, wanted to have a hackies, so we bought a nanny goat from Ludwig Wolfen, the German trader at Moloch, and one evening, the 23rd of December, I helped Sarah to drive and drag the unsuspecting creature home to her husband's place to the slaughter. I may as well say at once that McBride's nanny-goat haggis was a hideous failure, and my boat's crew, to whom it was handed over with many strong expressions about McBride's beastly provincial taste, said that it smelt good like shark's liver, but was not at all so juicy. Meanwhile, Wolfen, a fat, good-hearted Teuton, with a face like a full moon in a fog, called upon me and remarked in a squashy tone of voice, superinduced by too many years of lager beer and its resultant adipose tissue, that he and Peter Hoismans, his neighbor, would feel very much hurt if we did not invite them to participate in the festivities. I said that Blazyhead, for so we called dear old McBride, and myself, would be delighted, whereupon Wolfen, who had once, when he was a sailor on an English ship, 
spent a Christmas in a public house somewhere in the vicinity of the East India docks, said that the correct thing for us to do would be to have a Christmas cake. Also, he suggested we should invite Tom Devine and Charlie Dubuis, the two American traders who lived across the lagoon, to join the party. Being aware of the fact that, from trade jealousies, there had hitherto been a somewhat notorious bitterness of feeling between my German fellow traders and the two Americans, I shook his hand warmly, said that I was delighted to see that he could forgive and forget, and that I should that moment send my boat across the lagoon to Devine and Charlie de Bouy with a written invitation, and ask them to favor us with their company. Also, that as Mrs. Charlie, who was a Samoan half-caste girl, was skilled in baking bread, perhaps she would lend Mes Dames McBride, Wolfen, and Huysmans her assistance in making a Christmas cake, the size of which should cause the native population to sit up and respect us as men of more than ordinary intelligence and patriotism. On the evening of the 24th, three whaleboats, attended by a flotilla of small native canoes, sailed into the little sandy-beached nook upon the shores of which the trading station was situated. The three boats were steered by the Messrs. Peter Huysmans, Charles de Bouy, and Thomas Devine, who were accompanied by their wives, children, and numerous female relatives, all the latter being clad in their holiday attire of new mats, and with their hair excessively anointed with scented coconut oil, scarlet hibiscus flowers behind their ears, and necklaces of sweet-smelling pieces of pandanus drupes. McBride, Mrs. McBride, and I received them the moment they stepped out of the boats, and then Ludwig Wolfen, who was disposed in the background with an accordion, and seated on a gin-case, played the Star-Spangled Banner to the accompaniment of several native drums beaten by his wife and her sister and brothers. Then my boatman, a stalwart Maori half-caste, advanced from out the thronging crowd of natives which surrounded us, and planted in the sand a British red ensign attached to a tall bamboo pole, and called for three cheers for the Queen of England, and three for the President of the United States. This at once gave offence to Ludwig Wolfen, who asked what was the matter with the Emperor of Germany, whereupon Bill Gray, the Maori, took off his coat and asked him what he meant and a fierce encounter was only avoided by half a dozen strapping natives seizing Billy and making him sit down on the sand, while the wrathful Ludwig was hustled by Donald McBride and Mrs. Ludwig, and threatened with a hammering if he insulted the gathering by his ill-timed and injudicious remarks about a foreign potentate. Ludwig, I regret to say, had begun his Christmas on the previous evening. But we were all too merry, and too filled with right good down companionship, to let such a trifle as this disturb the harmony of our first Christmas foregathering. And presently Bill Gray, his dark handsome face wreathed in a sunny smile, came up to the sulky and rightly indignant trader with outstretched hand, and said he was sorry and Wolfen, good-hearted German that he was, grasped it warmly, and said he was sorry too, 
and then we all trooped up to the house and sat down, only to rise up again with our glasses clinking together as we drank to our wives and ourselves and the coming Christmas, and to the brown smiling faces of the people around us who wondered why we grew merry so suddenly. For sometimes, as they knew, we had all quarreled with one another, and bitter words had passed. For so it ever is, and ever shall be, even in the far South Seas, when questions of trade and money come between good fellowship and old-time camaraderie. And then sweet, dark-eyed Sarah, McBride's young wife, took up her guitar and sang us love-songs in the old Lusitanian tongue of her father. And Tom Devine, the ex-boat-steerer, and Charlie Dubuis, the reckless, and Peter Huysmans, the red-faced, white-haired old Dutchman, all joined hands and danced around the rough table, while Billy Gray and Ludwig Wolfen stood on the top of it and sang, or tried to sing, Home Sweet Home. And the writer of this memory of those old Pacific days sat in a chair in a doorway and wondered where we should all be the next year. For as we sang and danced, and the twang-twang of Sarah's guitar sounded through the silent night without, Tom Devine, the American, held up his hand to McBride, and silence fell. Boys, he said, let us drink to the memory of the far-off faces of those dear ones whom we never may see again. He paused a moment, and then caught sight of Sarah as she bent over her guitar with downcast eyes. And to those who are with us now, our wives and our children and our friends, drink, my boys, and the first man who, either tonight or tomorrow, talks about business and dirty, filthy dollars, shall get fired out right away before he knows where he is, for this is Christmas time, and Sarah McBride, why the devil don't you play something and keep me from making a fool of myself? So Sarah, with a twist of her lithe body and a merry gleam in her full big eyes, sang another song, and then long bony McBride came over to her and kissed her on her fair smooth forehead, whispered something that we did not hear, and pointed to Charlie Dubuis, who stood, glass in hand, at the farthest corner of the big room, his thin sun-tanned face as grave and sober as that of an English judge. Gentlemen, then sotto voce to the chairman in the doorway, just fancy us South Sea loafers calling ourselves gentlemen. Gentlemen, we are here to spend a good time, and I move that we quit speech-making and start the women on that cake. Tom Devine and myself are, as you know, members of two of the first families in America, and only came to the South Seas to wear out our old clothes. Oh, shut up, said Devine. We don't want to hear anything about the first American families. This is an English Christmas, with full-blooded South Sea trimmings. Off you go, you women, and start on the cake. So Charlie Dubuis shut up, and then the women, headed by Sarah and Mary Devine, trooped off to the cookhouse to beat up eggs for the cake, and left us to ourselves. When it drew near midnight, they returned, and Peter Huysmans arose, and, twisting his grizzled mustaches, said, "'Mine boys, will you let me tell you dot 
Now is coming der morn when Jesus Christ was born. And will you please, Mary Devine, tell those natives outside to stop those damned drums while I speaks. And come here, you, McBride, mit your red hat, and you, Ludwig Wolfen, and you, Tom Devine, and you, Charlie Dubuis, you wicked damned devil, and you, Tom Dennison, you saucy Australian boy, mit your curled moustache and your svelte vile tucked suit, and let us join our hands together and agree to have no more quarrelings and no more angry votes, for why should we quarrel, as our good friends say, over dirty dollars, when there is room enough for us all in this lagoon to get a decent livings? And then we should try and remember that we, none of us, is going to live forever, and when we is dead, we is dead a damned long time. But now, mine friends, I will say no more, for I am dry. So here's to all our good healths, and let us promise one another not to have no more angry votes. And so we all gathered around the big table, and, grasping each other's hands, raised our glasses and drank together without speaking, for there was something, we knew not what, that lay behind Dutch Peter's little speech, which made us think. Presently, when a big and gaudy German-made cuckoo clock in the room struck twelve, even reckless Charlie Dubuis forgot his old joke about Tom Dennison's damned old squawking British duck, as he called the little painted bird, and we all went outside and sat smoking our pipes on the wide veranda, and watching the flashing torchlights of the fishing canoes as they paddled slowly to and fro over the smooth waters of the sleeping lagoon. Then, almost ere we knew it, the quick red sun had turned the long black line of palms on Caroline to purple, and then to shining green, and Christmas Day had come. Tonight, as a chill December wind wails through the leafless elms and chestnuts of this quiet Kentish village, I think of that far-away Christmas Eve, and the rough, honest, sun-browned faces of the men who were around me, and pressed my hand when Peter Hoisman spoke of home and Christmas, and Tom Devine of the dear faces whom we never might see again. For only one with the writer is left. McBride and his gentle, sweet-voiced Sarah went to their death a year or two later in The Savage and Murderous Solomons. Wolfen and his wife and children perished at sea when the Sadie Foster schooner turned turtle off the marshals, and Devine and Charlie Dubuis, comrades to the last, sailed away to the Moluccas in a ten-ton boat and were never heard of again. Their fate is one of the many mysteries of the deep. Peter Hoisman's is alive and well, and only a year ago I grasped his now trembling hand in mighty London and spoke of our meeting on Milly Lagoon. And then again, in a garish and tinseled city bar, we raised our glasses and drank to the memory of those who had gone before. The Cowboy's Christmas Ball by William Lawrence Chittenden, read in English. To the Ranchman of Texas. 
Way out in western Texas, where the clear forks waters flow, where the cattle are a-browsin' and the Spanish ponies grow, where the northers come a-whistlin' from beyond the neutral strip, and the prairie dogs are sneezin' as if they had the grip, where the coyotes come a-howlin' round the ranches after dark, and the mockin'-birds are singin' to the lovely meadow-lark, where the possum and the badger and rattlesnakes abound, and the monstrous stars are winkin' o'er a wilderness profound, where lonesome tawny prairies melt into airy streams, where the double mountains slumber in heavenly kinds of dreams, where the antelope is grazin' and the lonely plovers call, it was there that I attended the cowboy's Christmas ball. The town was Anson City, old Jones's county seat, where they raise polled Angus cattle and waven whiskered wheat, where the air is soft and balmy and dry and full of health, and the prairies is exploding with agricultural wealth, where they print the Texas Western that Heck McCann supplies with news and yarns and stories of most amazing size, where Frank Smith pulls the badger on knowing tender feet, and democracy's triumphant and mighty hard to beat, where lives that good old hunter John Millsap from Lamar, who used to be the sheriff back east in Paris, saw. "'Twas there I said, Anson, with the lively widder wall, "'that I went to that reception, the cowboy's Christmas ball. "'The boys had left the ranches and come to town in piles. "'The ladies, kind of scattering, had gathered in for miles, "'and yet the place was crowded, as I remember well. "'Twas got for the occasion at the Morning Star Hotel. "'The music was a fiddle and a lively tambourine, "'and a vial come imported by the stage from Abilene.' The room was togged out gorgeous, with mistletoe and shawls, and candles flickered frescoes around the airy walls. The women folks looked lovely, the boys looked kind of treed, till their leader commenced yelling, Whoa, fellas, let's stampede! And the music started sighing and a wailing through the hall as a kind of introduction to the cowboy's Christmas ball. The leader was a fellow that came from Swenson's ranch. They called him Windy Billy from Little Dead Man's Branch. His rig was kind of careless, big spurs and high-heeled boots. He had the reputation that comes when fellers shoots. His voice was like a bugle upon the mountain's height. His feet were animated and a mighty moving sight. When he commenced to holler, "Now, fellas, stake your pen! Lock horns to all them heifers and rustle em like men. Salute your lovely critters, now swing and let em go. Climb the grapevine round em, all hands do si do. You mavericks join the roundup, just skipper waterfall. Huh, it was getting active, the cowboy's Christmas ball. The boys was tolerable skittish, the ladies powerful neat. That old bass vial's music just got there with both feet. That wailing, frisky fiddle I never shall forget, and Windy kept a singin', I think I hear him yet. Oh, exes chase their squirrels and cut em to one side, spur Treadwell to the center with cross Pete Charlie's bride, Doc Hollis down the middle and twine the lay's chain, Varn Andrews pen the fillies in Big T Diamond's train. All pull your freight together, now swallow, fork, and change. Big Boston, lead the trail herd through little pitchforks range. Purr round your gentle pussies, now rope em, balance all. <laughs> it was getting active, the cowboy's Christmas ball. 
The dust riz fast and furious. We all just galloped round till the scenery got so giddy that Zebar Dick was downed. We buckled to our partners and told them to hold on, then shook our hooves like lightning until the early dawn. Don't tell me about cotillions or Germans. No siree. That whirl at Anson City just takes the cake with me. I'm sick of lazy shufflings. Of them I've had my fill. Give me a frontier breakdown backed up by Windy Bill. McAllister ain't nowhere. When Windy leads the show, I've seen em both in harness. And so I sort of know. Oh, Bill, I shan't forget you. And I'll oftentimes recall that lively gated soiree. The Cowboys Christmas Ball. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook. You can download our app for iOS devices, Android devices, Windows phones. You can listen to Craftlet on Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, Google Play Music. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs> <laughs>